0: dismissed for Children's Church. And just in case you didn't hear me, we have a really spiffy slide for you as well. Thank you. Well, let's take our Bibles, and we will turn to Hebrews chapter 1, and we're continuing the text that we began last week, The Greatness of Our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, this is an important course of study because what we need to realize is this. God has given us this revelation so that we can know Him better. The Word of God wants us to know these things about Jesus Christ because in knowing them, we will worship Him. We will be able to more clearly understand who He is, who this God that we have a relationship with is. And really, for the child of God, Nothing should thrill us more than the opportunity to get to know Jesus Christ in a deeper and fuller and richer way. A lot of times we think of that in terms of our feeling and feeling close and connected to him. But listen, what trumps feeling is fact. And we need to understand that those feelings are going to come and go. We need to have our facts right about Jesus Christ. We need to understand who he is. And so this text gives us more insight into the Son of God. Jesus Christ. Now, as we come to the fifth verse, what we find is the Word of God is sharing with us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And notice what the fifth verse says. For to which of the angels did he ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father, or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. The Scripture is telling us that Jesus is called the Son of God, and some find this fifth verse to be a little disturbing. When it says, you are my son, today I have become your father, and I will be his father, and he will be my son, some people are confused by that, because you know what it appears if we read it just in our English Bibles without thinking about context or anything else? It would appear that Jesus didn't always exist, that he came into existence. As a matter of fact, there were some heresies in the first century that actually used this as a proof text to say that Jesus wasn't always in existence, that he came into existence. What we need to understand, though, is this text in light of the context of Scripture. And that's what we're going to look at. But first, let's consider this title, Son of God. Why is it so important? When... The writer of Hebrews is establishing Jesus Christ being the Son of God. He speaks of it as being superior to the angels. We left off in the fourth verse which said, So he became much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. And what we find in the flow of the context is this. The name that Jesus inherited is the name Son of God. And we need to understand what that name means. Son of God carries with it the idea of equality with God, the Father. We need to understand that very, very clearly. Now to us, we hear somebody say Son of God and we don't see that connection. But in the first century, they saw that connection very, very clearly. As a matter of fact, when Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, this is the response of the spiritual elite in the Jewish community. For this reason, the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Every time Jesus claimed to be the son of God, in the Jewish mindset, they were saying, you're claiming equality with God. And so they took up stones to stone him because he made the claim, I am equal with the father. So Jesus Christ being called the Son of God shows an equality with the Father. And we need to understand that aspect. So why does the text then, as we look at this, quote from a psalm that says, you are my son, but then adds, today I have become your father. There are a couple of dynamics going on here. The first dynamic is this. The title son, which Christ inherited, is a term of the incarnation. And let me explain what I mean by that. Jesus Christ took upon Himself the name Son when He took upon Himself humanity, adding it to His deity. You see, what the Scripture teaches is that prior to Christ coming to this world and accepting humanity, He existed equal with God the Father. We find this In the book of Philippians, chapter 2, where it says this, who being in very nature God, now look at this next phrase, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. By the way, if you're following in your outlines, this was a later add-on after it went to press. So just add the reference to your outline. But I want you to think about what it's saying. Let's not get lost in that. Let's think about this for a moment. Jesus Christ is in very nature God and He didn't consider equality with God something to be held on to. In other words, he was willing to take that equality with God the Father and set it aside. So verse 7 goes on to say this, He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. What the Scripture is telling us is this, Jesus accepted humanity, adding it to his deity, and at that point, I believe, he became in fullness... The Son of God, by accepting that title, that name. So, when the scripture says, Today I became your Father, what it's talking about is that incarnation, that time where Christ added to his deity flesh and became completely God and completely human. Jesus always existed in eternity past as the second member of the Trinity, the Godhead. Throughout eternity past, he existed. But adding to his deity humanity, he took on the name that he inherited, Son of God. There's another dynamic here as well. The text that the writer of Hebrews quotes is from the second psalm, the seventh verse. Now this particular psalm is a messianic psalm. It gives prophecy. About the Messiah. And it also gives prophecy about a particular role of the Messiah, and that is that he would be king. So when God says, Today I have become your father, what he's saying is it is an enthronement psalm that talks about the Messiah being king, and it was the time that he became king that God was speaking of in this text. When was Jesus king? He was born king. When Jesus took humanity and had a physical birth, he became this king that is spoken of. He was the fulfillment of the prophecy that we find in this second psalm. So really what the writer of Hebrews is saying is this. God had made a promise to David that there would be one who would come and occupy the throne and he would be the son of God. And when he accepts that role as king, when he becomes that king, then this prophecy is fulfilled. Jesus Christ fulfilled it. When he was incarnated, When he died on the cross, when he rose again, when he was seated at the right hand of the Father, Jesus Christ fulfilled that prophecy. He was enthroned at the right hand of God. There's something else that we need to look at in this text. As we continue in the fifth verse, it goes on to say this, I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, here's a second text where Jesus Christ is identified as son, but once again, It speaks as though in the past, Christ wasn't the son of God, that he wasn't in existence. Some people take this text and try to twist it to make it mean that. Once again, we have to look into scripture and we have to see this, that Jesus was chosen. Excuse me, I skipped a couple of verses here. There we go. (laughs) Jesus was chosen to be the king over all by God. And he was chosen to be the king overall because he is a descendant of David. You see, God had made a promise to David in the Old Testament. The promise was this, someone will occupy the throne forever. Now when we read our Old Testament history, what do we find? We find that the kings of David's line occupied the throne of Israel for a time. But what happened? They became so corrupt, so sinful, that God discontinued the Davidic rule. It was stopped. Then what happened? The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to David is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The promise we find in 2 Samuel Some of the elements that we find here will fit the Lord Jesus Christ and some of them won't. Notice what it says. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now that's the part that's being quoted in this particular text. There is the promise that God will establish the throne of David forever. That God will be his father, that he will be his son. So what it's doing is talking about one who would fulfill this promise... That was made to David. Then the text goes on, though, and it says this. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. Now, wait a minute. That doesn't fit with Jesus Christ, does it? You see, what happens with prophecy very often is this. There is an immediate fulfillment and then an ultimate fulfillment. The immediate fulfillment was Solomon. Solomon was going to come in and be king, but he wouldn't be king forever, would he? Talk about corruption. Talk about one who turned away from God, Solomon fits the bill. A thousand wives, introducing gods and foreign gods into the temple area. He definitely didn't fulfill the bill of being this spiritual deliverer, but Jesus Christ does. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus Christ completely fulfills the promise that God made specifically to David. He is showing that He is the Son of God, but He is also showing that He is the fulfillment of all the promises that God made, that there would be a ruler forever over Israel. So this text is really sharing with us two dynamics. He is the Son of God, making Him equal with God, superior to the angels. But secondarily, He is the fulfillment of all that God promised to David as far as having a human ruler to fulfill the promise that there would be someone on the throne forever. Our Lord Jesus Christ fulfills that. And we need to grasp that. We need to understand that He fulfills all of the promises of God and worship Him because of that. But then the text goes on. After the text talks about Him being the Son of God in verse 5, in verses 6 and 7, and then again in verse 14, We find that he is the sovereign Lord and creator of all of the angels. The theme that was introduced in verse 4, that Jesus Christ became superior to the angels, is really brought out as we continue in this text. In verse 6, it says this. Again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let the angels worship him. I want us to pause for a moment and think about that statement. Once again, when we come to the sixth verse, some people will take the idea of firstborn and they'll look at that and they'll say, Now, see, once again, Jesus came to existence. He's firstborn. Here's what we need to understand about the term firstborn firstborn does not always mean order in birth, it can also mean position of authority. The firstborn had the lion's share of the inheritance. The firstborn received all of the inheritance that the father would give, really. And it's a picture of what Jesus Christ did when, as the son of God, he died on the cross, rose again, seated at the right hand of God. He received all of the inheritance that God had in mind for him. So being the firstborn was something very interesting. The firstborn didn't wait to receive that inheritance until the father died, The firstborn was actually given responsibility and authority even while the father was still alive. He was overseeing his inheritance even before the death of the person who would be leaving it to him. And that is a picture of Jesus Christ. He oversees all that he obtained because of the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension to the right hand of God. He oversees it. We saw that last week in verses 1 through 4, didn't we? That he holds them together by the power of his word. That he superintends everything. This is what the writer of Hebrews is saying. But then he quotes the 97th Psalm when he says this, let all angels worship him. Now, when the word of God tells the angels to worship Jesus Christ, What is it saying about the angels? That they are inferior. We can only worship one who is superior to us. So when they are commanded, when they are compelled to worship God in the person of Jesus Christ, the writer of Hebrews is saying that Jesus Christ is worthy of worship because He is God. It couldn't be clearer. Look at verses 7 and then ultimately 14. Look at what verse 7 says. And this is something else we see about him. Angels carry out whatever Christ sends them to do. In verse 7 it says this. And speaking of the angels, he says, He makes his angels' winds, his servants' flames of fire. Jesus Christ directs the angels. By the way, this is a quotation of the 104th Psalm. And what it's saying is this. Jesus Christ has authority over the angels. Why? Because as we saw last week, he created the angels. He made the angels. So he made them winds and his servants flames of fire. In other words, he directs them, he sends them because as creator, he made them. That's the idea of that particular psalm. The superiority of Jesus Christ is crystal clear. We saw this verse last week, but it bears repeating. For by him, this is speaking of Christ, All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So Christ, as the creator of the angels, directs them where they should go. As a matter of fact, flip to the 14th verse. And notice what the 14th verse says here in Hebrews chapter 1. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Now, this is profound when you think about it. Jesus Christ is over the angels because he inherited a superior name. But you know what is true of us? Because of who we are in Christ Jesus and because we are in him and he is over the angels, we are over the angels with Christ according to this passage of Scripture. They are ministering spirits that God sends to minister to us will inherit salvation it's a precious promise when you think about it it's a wonderful truth so God is sharing with us this exalted position that Jesus Christ has he's sharing with us that he's the son of God he's sharing with us that he is the sovereign Lord over the angels and even the creator of the angels but then we come to the eighth verse And the 8th verse is where this really gets exciting. Not that it hasn't been exciting so far as to who Jesus is, but I want you to look at what the 8th verse says. But about the Son, He says... Now, this is God speaking, okay? About the Son, the context of this, the He there is God. But about the Son, He says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Who... Does God address Jesus Christ as? Thank you. <laughs> Very clear, isn't it? Your throne, O oh God, will last forever and ever. Couldn't be clearer. As a matter of fact, this particular passage is so clear in what it says about Jesus Christ being God that one of the cults, the Jehovah's Witnesses, that doesn't believe that Jesus is God, had to retranslate this particular passage. They retranslated it to, Your God is your throne forever. Now, we have an unfortunate thing called original manuscripts that totally contradicts that. This is the accurate translation Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. It's very, very clear. It's speaking about. Jesus Christ being God, as it's quoted here in the book of Hebrews. And just in case we don't get it right, here it is in the original. The passage that it's quoted from, Psalm 45, 6. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be your scepter of your kingdom. You love righteousness and hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. The exact quotation that we find here in the book of Hebrews... So, in Hebrew, it's translated that way. In Greek, it's translated that way. It's an accurate translation. And it's stating with clarity Jesus' position as God. Listen, next time you talk to somebody and they say Jesus isn't God, remember this text. This text makes it so clear God the Father addresses God the Son as God. And what it says further in this eighth verse is intriguing. After he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, in other words, Jesus rules forever, the fulfillment of the promise that was made to David, goes on to say, And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus Christ will have a literal kingdom here on earth. And righteousness will be the scepter. Now, the scepter was something that a king used to command, it represented his authority. When he would hold the scepter out after making a decree, that meant carved and granite. This is now law. Look at what the scepter of Christ's kingdom will be. Righteousness. His holiness. His righteousness. Will be the authority behind his kingdom. It's a beautiful statement. But then look at the ninth verse. You have... Loved righteousness and hated wickedness. And then look at what the text goes on to say. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. Boy, you know, I wish he could have been more specific about how he thought Jesus was God. I mean, isn't that just about as clear as it gets? Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions. The text is crystal clear. Jesus Christ is God. He is to be worshipped as God. And really that's the thrust of this whole first chapter. You see in the first century there was a growing idea that Jesus wasn't God or that he accepted being God later. All kinds of different ideas were floating around. Here the writer of Hebrews is setting it straight. Jesus Christ is God in every sense of the word. And even the Father recognizes him as such. And so what does that say to us We should recognize him as such as well. If God the Father addresses him as God, sets him above his companions, anoints him with the oil of joy, then we should understand he is God, worthy of being worshiped in every sense of the word. What a wonderful text. Then we come to verse 10. And as we come to verse 10, we see this He is the Creator who transcends all. Look at what the 10th verse says. In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. You know what's happening here? There was a rabbinical tradition in the first century that when you wanted to make a point, you would just compile Scripture after Scripture after Scripture after Scripture. And once you had given this chain of Scriptures, all the person who didn't understand or disagreed with you could do was go, uh... You know, I got no response to that. So, what the writer of Hebrews is using that tradition, he's building scripture after scripture after scripture to show the superiority of Jesus Christ. And when it comes to the part where it says, In the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth, it's talking about God's creative power. Now, this, once again, is a quotation from the Old Testament. And it's the 102nd Psalm. In the beginning you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment, like clothing. You will change them and they will be discarded but you remain the same and your years will never end. The exact quote that we find here in the book of Hebrews and what is it saying? It's saying that Jesus transcends creation. That he was there in the beginning as God Laying the very foundations of earth. Think about this word in the beginning. A couple of passages where it's used. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It speaks of the creative power of God. In the Gospel of John, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Couldn't be clearer, could it? It was through Jesus Christ that everything was created. He is the mediator, but He is God. And so this scripture is sharing with us this very simple, this very plain truth that Jesus transcends creation because He created creation itself. He laid the foundations of the earth. And look at the next statement in that 10th verse. The heavens are the work of your hands. Every night that you go out and you see the stars all the work of His hands. When you see those pictures through the Hubble telescope of the universe, pictures of galaxy after galaxy after galaxy, and you look and you're just wowed by that, the hand of His creation. He created the heavens. They're the work of His hands. This is the Jesus we worship. The Jesus who added to His deity humanity That he might come to this earth and accept the penalty for our sin. That he might die on the cross, shed his blood, being our sacrifice. Do you see the value that you have to God, to the Lord Jesus Christ, by who he is and what he did for you? We can worship him as we read this passage and think about who he is in light of this revelation. Look at what this text goes on to say about the heavens in verse 11. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed, but you remain the same. And your years will never end. What he's saying about Jesus Christ is this. All of this creation is winding down. It's amazing when you look at it, the second law of thermodynamics, things tend to go from order to disorder, it's universal. Things fall apart, they don't build. And that's true of all of creation. Why? I believe it happened when sin entered creation. And the death that sin brought about, brought about everything falling apart, coming to pieces. And it continues, and it will wear out. But the Word of God gives us an even greater perspective. In Second Peter, we see this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. The day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in heat, but in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. All that we see around us goes away. One remains constant. That's Jesus Christ. Now, I love the perspective that Peter gives us. If this is true, how should we view the stuff that's around us? It's all going to burn. The house I build, the car I buy, the body that I work to build, which I obviously don't, (laughs) all of those things pass away. They're gone. They burn. One thing remains, Jesus Christ. And here's the truth. When we are in Christ, we are eternal as well. Because he gives to us eternal life. He should be worshipped for being eternal. Final thought. His conquered enemies will become a footstool. Look at verse 13. The Scripture says, To which of the angels did God ever say, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Now here, the writer of Hebrews is quoting the 110th Psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus Christ fulfills that. We know that in the future... The last enemy that is defeated is death. Look at what the writer of Corinthians, Paul, says. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And then look at verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now, that hasn't happened yet. The last I looked, there's still an obituary column, right? But it will. Jesus Christ conquered death for us who have trusted Christ as our Savior because we look forward to a resurrection. But there will come a time where there will be no more death at all. And He will conquer that because He is God. And then the text in 1 Corinthians also says this, "...the end will come when He hands over the kingdom to God the Father." after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power, there will come a time where Jesus completely vanquishes all of the satanic forces that stand opposed to him. And once all of that is concluded, he hands the kingdom over to the Father, according to Scripture. But Jesus Christ, right now, is seated at the right hand of God. And you know what I love about this text? I am not one of those people that likes to run to the end of the book to see what happens in the ultimate, unless it directly affects me. Well, you know, God's plan for this world sort of affects us. So you know what we're given a glimpse of here? God wins. Bottom line, God wins. And here's our takeaway. Worship Jesus Christ. Because as God, He has conquered everything and He is seated at the right hand of God. We have a wonderful Savior, worthy of our worship, worthy of our praise. And let me share this with you. If you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have no idea what you're missing. He offers you forgiveness of sin the opportunity to know Him and enter into a wonderful relationship with the Father through Him. He is God who set aside the ability to function as God, to take humanity upon Himself and live among us that He might die to pay for our sins. That sacrifice has infinite worth. And you know what that says to me? If Jesus Christ is God and man, When he died on the cross, he can more than pay for my sins and all of your sins because he is the God-man. Here's the thing. Take away the deity of Jesus Christ and you just have a man who sacrificed himself for others. Haven't we seen many men who will do that? It's a wonderful gesture, but all it accomplishes is whatever immediate goal they were trying to accomplish for Themselves by, by, by sacrificing themselves for others. Jesus' sacrifice is different because he's not just man, but the God-man who lived a perfect life in righteousness and holiness and died for us, taking our sin upon himself that we might find forgiveness. And the wonder of this is that we can have a personal relationship with Him by placing our faith in Him, trusting that His sacrifice on the cross was enough and turning our lives over to Him to be our Lord and our Savior. If you haven't made that decision, let me encourage you this morning. Turn to Him. Trust Him as your provision for salvation. Our wonderful God, the Lord Jesus Christ, revealed so clearly in this text. Praise Him. Worship Him as the one He revealed Himself to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this text. We thank You for the reminder that it is to us of Your greatness, of Your love for us, that You are our Savior, that You are sovereign over all. May we worship You and praise You in light of that truth. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.